Ephesians 1 verses 15 to 23 and again it's one of these sentences of Paul's that just he keeps going you almost don't know where to break it because it, it the sentence keeps flowing but just to get a handle on structure um, on the iPad here I think very simply it breaks down into a thank you so it's a prayer which he starts by saying thanks and then he asks for something he asks that God may give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation um, and then three things he wants them to know that you may know one the hope to which is called you two the rich of his glorious inheritance of the saints three his immeasurably great power and then he he says more about the power so thank you i'm asking god to enlighten your eyes to see one two three so let's start with the thank you andrew uh yeah so he's particularly thankful we often have a trio don't we of faith hope love he's particularly thankful for their faith and love and then he prays for their hope and why you can see why faith and love are very exciting to Paul from what he's just written so um if you've got faith according to verse 13 and 14 faith is the carabiner by which we can connect ourselves to this enormous and wonderful plan of god so if you discover someone's got faith that's really exciting you give thanks that god's put that faith in them uh, if someone's got love well that's exciting because you know according to verse 10 where history is headed and you know that God has got this plan to bring everyone together under Christ and already they're showing love between each other and this plan is coming into being. So he goes, he's, I can tell you other people who are in this plan and I'm really excited and I'm thankful to God for doing that. Um, and I guess it's worth just noticing he doesn't say well done. I mean, we take this for granted because Paul often has this, you know, I give thanks for you, etc. But it is God's doing. We give thanks to God if we have faith and if we have love. He's the one who put they put these things in us. So when someone becomes a Christian at church, you don't say, well done, or thanks for your faith. You say, thank you, Lord, that they did this, because you know he was responsible. Yeah. Which I guess, um, so what we're basically doing is taking this for this reason and looking back to the previous verses. Yeah. I remember David Jetman telling us that when you see the word therefore, you should ask what it's there for. And this is that same kind of thing. So because of chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, God's plans at work, he then sees that plan at work in the Ephesians, gives God the credit for it. Exactly. And then he has things that he wants to see more and more in them. Do you want to talk us through the, the three things he prays for? Well, or should we just talk about the, the thing he prays first, which is that God would give you revelation of this? Yeah. And this, I mean, this is so we got quite excited about this, didn't we? But how how does a Christian learn something? And maybe we think, well, you know, we're evangelicals, so they learn it through the Bible, which of course is true. And Paul believes that because he's an apostle, so he writes a letter conscious of his role as an apostle. But Paul the apostle doesn't just tell them something; he tells them something and prays that God would show it to them. And it's amazing how essential that second thing is. So in verse 17, I keep praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. So it's a very, you know, it's an exalted title. God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And so that just tells me that Paul doesn't think it's enough to share information because they're not going to be able to 
truly understand it or truly perceive it. And it's basically asked the question, what is it to know something? Like, mm. you know, I know that Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead, but do I know, know it? And it's mm. kind of, well, um, is it true in such a way as it grips you and um, captivates you? And and you, information sharing is not sufficient. You you need a you need supernatural revelation, and the eyes of your heart open. I remember hearing the playground you taunt, you know, because I wore, wore glasses at school and people used to call you four eyes. And one of my friend, a Christian friends, said that when he was called four eyes at, at school his parents trying to be helpful said, well, um, four eyes are better than two, which is not real, come back. <laughs> but it turns out kind of spiritually speaking, that's kind of true, that you've got physical eyes, but you've also got spiritual eyes and they can only be open with God's help. It's funny because we often use that kind of language of unbelievers, don't we? Like we, we pray that God would open their eyes, but this is of believers. Yeah. And it's not just habit that we pray before we look at the bible because this, the holy spirit who gave us the bible and we're very thankful for him doing that he is we depend on him for illumination so we need him every time to do the work in us to receive it so it's a real challenge for the preacher isn't it do i how is my congregation going to learn stuff well i want to teach them truly so i want to prepare my sermon but i want god to open their eyes for me to pray like if i'm if I'm a preacher, he spends time in Bible study, but not in prayer. It's not going to work. I mean, even Paul the Apostle knows that. And I suppose for us as Bible students as well, like if I struggle with some verses, what do I do? Well, I might turn to a commentary or watch an online video of two guys discussing Ephesians, you know. But to pray, like, Lord, please enlighten my eyes. Please give me your spirit of wisdom. Mm. And even something that you kind of already know, you might need to know more. So if you'd ask the Ephesians, do you know God? Yeah, of course. But his prayer is that they might know him. Or do you know what your hope is? Yeah, yeah, we know our hope. It's bring everything under Christ. And he prays that they might know their hope. So it's, yeah, there's a, a level of knowledge that we need to grow into whatever stage we're at. Yeah. And then the, the things he wants them to know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glory in heavens and the saints, and his immeasurably great power. So if you take those in order, that the hope to which he's called you, we kind of already saw in the previous study. So he, Yeah, he's brief on that, but that's because he's told us a lot already. So what has he told us about the hope? So God has got a plan to bring all things under one head, chapter 1, verse 10, yeah. in Christ. And that, in some ways, might you might... So it's the theme verse for Ephesians. It's the, the summary of where the history is going. And you're part of that, Ephesians, because you've trusted the gospel. And, um, and then at first sight, you assume the second one is, is another way of saying the same thing. So you've got a hope and you've got an inheritance, but it's actually not quite the same, is it? Tell us more about the inheritance. So it's lovely when you notice this and you can't read it the same again, but it's, it's not our inheritance. So we have thought about our inheritance in the first 14 verses, but this is God's inheritance. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? And it's not, uh, and, and then that opens up, actually you discover that the idea of God having an inheritance is a big Old Testament idea, and that this is a pretty ordinary biblical way of thinking about the future. Um, this sounds so strange. Like, so we're really used to saying 
when I in the future I'm going to receive from God, you know, a new creation and a new body and a, so stuff I'm going to get. But the idea of God is looking forward to something He gets. Yeah, that sounds strange, but you're saying it's actually quite a big idea in the Bible. And both are, uh, Old Testament ideas. So Joshua and and the land. The land is the inheritance of Israel, but Israel themselves are God's inheritance. They get the idea is that. At the end of it all, the reward is each other. You know, they both, uh, God gets the church. So I, I always think about, um, you know, what would you, what would happen if Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos were coming around for Christmas? What would you get them for Christmas presents <laughs> to the man, the men who have everything? Um, it's way harder if God's coming around. You know, what do you get, God, who can have everything? What, what would, could possibly excite God as a gift? And there is one thing, and it's the church. This is his treasure. This is what he's looking, longing for, um, to enjoy forever, um, and that's. I, it's just a, a huge mind shift to discover that we, we're his treasure, and this is is all over the Old Testament in phrases like. Yeah, I've got a list here. Um, all so Deuteronomy four twenty, nine twenty nine thirty two nine Psalm thirty three twelve, hundred six forty, and so on. And all of these verses talk about um, Israel being the Lord's inheritance, his heritage. Mm. Um, they are his reward at the end of it all. Um, and that, trans that idea transfers to the church we're now engrafted. So this, you know, if you think, what is the Christian hope? And we think like stuff, you know, I suppose the Islamic, the, the stereotype Islamic future is, you know, a paradise stocked with virgins or something. This isn't about stuff or pleasures. It's about a relationship. We get him and he gets us. And it's, I mean, later in Ephesians, of course, he'll describe it as a marriage, but it's um, the, the best thing to look forward to is being closer to the Lord Jesus and to our Heavenly Father. And being loved and treasured by him. Yeah. So he wants us to know that and know, know it, which means spiritual enlightenment. And then he prays for that we'd know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Now, this is a word that Ephesians are going to resonate with because they're, they live in a city famous for magic and they've seen demonic activity of um, great power. And you can read about it in Acts 19. So they, they know about power, but Paul says power is seen ultimately somewhere else um, according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. I remember getting quite excited when I realised that um, that God's power is not like the power that he raised Jesus, but it's according to the power that raised Jesus. And I think the significance of that is this. It's not just that the resurrection is an illustration of how powerful God is, but the, but the resurrection is the event in which God's power towards us was demonstrated. So it's not like... He's going. To, he's got a great future for you, and it will be. It will take a lot of power to bring it about. Here's an illustration: the resurrection. It's like he's got a great future for you, and here is the event in which he brought it about: the resurrection. And so, if we were thinking about in the first fourteen verses, how one of the things that's really underlined is the unstoppability of the Lord's plan that uh, he elected you, he predestined you. Every detail of history is heading in this way, how would you say this kind of underscores that same theme? So 
the, I mean, I think we'll see this in, in Ephesians that the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is actually the plan happening. It's not so. On the one hand, chapter one, verse ten, people debate: is this a plan that's already happened? Is it a plan that is going to happen at the end? And it's kind of both mm-hmm. because at the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension, his ascension, it was the decisive act of bringing things under Jesus' head. And the rest of history is just seeing that coming to fulfillment or consummation. Um, and we'll come to this when we look at the next chapter, but in chapter two, the dead and alive passage, you know, you were dead in your sins, but now you're alive in Christ. I always take sort of separately, but it's actually same part of this same thought. So he raised Christ from the dead, verse 20. He raised you from the dead, chapter two, verse five. It's the same resurrection, actually. He's not just got resources available, which will be useful for the future. He's already done the key parts already. So that's how invested God is in this future. And that, again, so if, if anything grows my hope, it's seeing how wonderful it's going to be and then seeing our place in it, we're the treasure, we're the apple of God's eye, and then seeing, and it not only is it unstoppable because of his power, but he's already done everything necessary in the past. So there's, you know, it's just uh, leaning into it now. And um, so God's power in raising Christ gets most airtime. It gets all of verses 19 to 23. I remember you saying to me, Andrew, that we, we tend to talk about Jesus' death and resurrection, but we miss out the third stage of his ascension, mm-hmm. which arguably is the most important thing of all in Ephesians. Yeah. So tell us about Jesus' ascension. So, um, yeah, we, we're going to see how central the, the cross is when we get to the second half of chapter two and, and his blood. But really before then, um, all the excitement is around Jesus being raised um, above the powers. And he's, he's raised... Um, he just moves from the dead. You mean, so he goes from the lower parts of the earth, from the grave on Easter morning, to a resurrection body, but then he doesn't stop. He keeps going up. Exactly. And, and the verses talk about him being raised above every power in the universe, not just into the heavenly realms, but above all the, the, the authorities and powers that there are. And that's really important. It's, it's important um, if you're Ephesian, because you are very aware of magic and you're te- probably you know, worried that Granny's going to hex you. You know that spiritual powers are real and they're terrifying. And so to know that in Christ, you are not vulnerable. You're not, you're, you're above them. If you're in him, he's above them. You're safe. That would have been very reassuring. But it's reassuring for, for us because um, our history as a human race is that we decided to listen to the voice of the serpent. And we, as we're going to see in chapter two, we've been following the ruler of the power of the air ever since. We're, we're captive to to someone stronger than us, spiritual force. And so to discover that uh, in Christ, I can be what a human being was always called to be. I can be um, not following Satan anymore, but free. Um, that means that I can, I can fulfill my you know, vocation as a human being at last. It's, that's exciting. So powers, when it talks in verse 21 about rules and authorities and powers and dominions, we're going to discover in later in Ephesians that we're not just talking like government. So a power is not just the president of the United States or 
um, in their days, the you know, the Roman emperor or whatever, but we're talking supernatural powers in the heavenly places. Yeah. And we, and as you say, they would they would have known that because they're very, in a way that our culture is quite naive about, like we think the only power is Putin or you know, the, um, um, the prime minister or something, but they're very aware of these spiritual forces and, and authorities. I remember like a friend of mine at my old church got converted out of an occult background. And I think my, I was, I was a sort of atheist, Richard Dawkins, he type atheist. So I, I sort of scoffed at the mention of the supernatural because I thought this was just a material universe. But for him, his conversion was, he's, I don't, I don't disbelieve in the supernatural. He's, I, I never remember going to bed as a kid without being scared mm-hmm. of demons and because he knew they were real. And his only question was, is Jesus more powerful than them? So, the, you know, that it's interesting. In, you know, in, in some of our materialistic Western world, we forget, we naively forget about the reality of magic in the spiritual realms. Yeah. But people who know them firsthand, they need to know that God's in charge. Yeah. And there's this lovely phrase, um, everything under his feet in verse 22. Um, and that, that's a little nod t- to someone who's familiar with other parts of the Bible, that it's not just that Jesus is raised as the son of God, he's raised as the true human being, because this is a, a nod to Psalm 8, which itself is a riff on Genesis 1. About... So just, just slow down, so just reminds that. So Genesis 1 says, man in God's image, men and female, um, and he's given dominion exactly. over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, everything that creeps on the, on the land. Yeah. Psalm 8 has the same categories. David goes out on his balcony, he looks at the stars and he, you know, he gives praise to God and he wonders, at, you know, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man? And then he says, um, you've put all things under his feet. And that little phrase wasn't in Genesis, but it's his summary of what it is to be a human being. God's calling is that um, humanity are, have dominion over everything. So do you hear that, Gustav? Here's the... I have dominion over you. <laughs> and so when uh, Jesus is raised from the dead and ascended, that is a big day for humanity because we get, uh, at last there is dust of the earth on the throne of heaven. A human being is doing what humans were always created to be, have true dominion. And if you're joined to him, uh, you get to be part of that new humanity. This is massively relevant, isn't it, at the moment where... There's such fear about climate change and about you know, the extinction rebellion movement and the thing, and people are thinking, what is the future for our planet? And actually, Ephesians says, well, the future for the planet is bound up with God's plan for the church. And that's not the answer people are expecting. You know, what will save the world? Oh, the church will. And it's not just that the church would do recycling and you know, that we ought to be good stewards of the planet, but it's that the church in Jesus is restored to the right place of dominion over a disordered creation so the hope for the rainforest is a, a universe rightly governed by human beings and you so you're saying this is god's plan for humanity but we see it happen in jesus as a human being so these these verses in some ways aren't about jesus divinity but about his role as the the second adam the new man yeah and we're going to see some of this creation language later in Ephesians in chapter two, where his workmanship and um, chapter two, verse 10, and, and the, the idea of being in his image will come up in chapter four. So the idea that um, in Jesus, we're part of a, um, 
what it is to be human, a new humanity. Um, and so, yeah, the, behind all of this is is the good plan of Genesis one, but better. Mm. Yeah. Um, I just want to draw verse twenty two on the iPad if I can, because I think chapter one verse ten used to confuse me when it was God's plan to bring all things together under one head in Christ. And I think there's a, a parallel verse in Colossians which talks about reconciling all things to him. And if you just take those verses, you might think it's a sort of universalism. So in the end, everyone's saved, everyone's friends with Jesus. But I think chapter 1, verse 22 helps a bit with that. So if you've got Jesus the head and then the church is the body, um, equals the church, and he'll talk about that language before. But then there's another place that you can be under Jesus. I'm going to do Mickey Mouse shoes, which is enemies under his feet. So actually everything is ordered under Jesus, but not in the same way. So you can be ordered under him as part of his body, united to him, but under him. Or you can be under him, trampled under him. But he has dominion one way or the other. Obviously it's better to be part of the body than crushed under the feet. Um, and that last verse, verse 23, is another way of saying, so just as um, Jesus is the head over everything, but if you're in the church, you're in the body, you're at the focus of his dominion. He, he's given as a gift to the church all his resources available for you. So in the same way, the one who feels everything, um, it, the focus of his fullness, and we're going to see the, the picture at the end of chapter two of uh, the spirit filling the church as a temple, but the place where God's fullness is known most um, intensely is in the church. So the one, it, it, I love it because, um, you know, what would make you feel secure, let's say you're a wife, where you would want to know two things, is your husband committed to you? And it, does your husband have kind of any power generally? Well, what about if the one who has dominion over everything, feels everything, uh, the focus of his uh, attention and his fullness is you. It's, you couldn't be more safe. Um, yeah. So, so let's wind back and, because there's so many things here, aren't there? Let's just put it back in So he basically says, I've heard your questions, Ephesians, and so I thank God for it, because I know that's his work in you. That's his plan at work. And now I'm praying for supernatural understanding and we should pray for that like every time we come to the bible it's not enough to do bible study we need our eyes enlightened to know three things what we're going to receive our hope what he's going to receive as his inheritance which is us so it's sort of two sides of the same coin we get each other and then i'll pray you'll know that the power that has already done this because as jesus was raised from the dead he ascended above the powers um, and everything's under his feet as the new Adam. He's, head, he's given as head for the church or to the church, his body. I mean, it's again, you know, he knew that you could describe the plan for the universe in a way where the church is absolutely central to it. Um, should we talk about outboxes? Like, what, how has this encouraged you or how has this hurt you to respond to the Lord, Andrew? I think one of the things um, is re focusing who Jesus is, who the church is, what our future is. Um, so Jesus is just much bigger 
here than I tend to think of him. He, he's um, uh, he's the supreme one who I can trust. Um, my future is is not just something which I'm hoping will turn out for the best. It, in, in what he's done in the past, it's already set my future. Um, the church is not just this thing that's battered and embarrassing, um, but it's the, the apple of God's eye. So I'm, I'm kind of refiguring the furniture in my mind about God's plan. But at the same time, it's just it's, it's exciting my hope and telling me that I need God's help for that hope. In fact, one of the, mm. one of the outboxes must be that this becomes these are God's goals for us. He wants us to know him, to know this hope. And if that's his goal for me, that should be my goal. And I should be praying what Paul prays for me. Mm. Um, and just how, you know, in our prayers, we often pray about our circumstances and we pray about battles with sin and whatever, but we ought to also be praying, Lord, please help me to truly know the reality of what Jesus has achieved and where he's now seated and what that means about my future. And yeah, so pray, don't just pray for unbelievers to understand the gospel, pray for yourself and your fellow Christians to understand the gospel. Yeah. And maybe this is a prayer that we could use to do that. I mean, it's interesting that this isn't just Paul explaining theology. This is Paul disclosing to us his prayer. And maybe it's partly there so that we can pray it. I mean, I, I remember that book reading at university that, um, Don Carson's A Call to Spiritual Reformation, which um, it's not a great title, I think, but it's a brilliant book. <laughs> so it's actually a book about Paul's prayers. And Don Carson says, if you want to improve your prayer life, why not use biblical prayers like, like these ones? And he, I mean, he goes through this one. But that would be a great thing to do with it, wouldn't it? Having understood the passage, why not then make it our prayers for the next week or, you know, pray it once a month or, but actually, because my prayers for people, you know, I pray for you and your family and, and all the children and so on. But I don't pray these kinds of things. We tend not to pray such big spiritual prayers for people. It'd be good to pray this one. Yeah. And to discover, uh, even just discovering God's goals for me. I remember as a big moment as a child discovering that over against, you know, what I thought I had goals for my life, my parents had goals for me and that I should take those into account or... But what about if the one who loves me and who's running the universe has goals for me? That that's a big moment, and I think these. Yeah, I want to realign myself with this. I want to know him. I want to have his hope as my hope. Yeah. Amen.